Welcome to the Diabetes Vault. Research into diabetes has been behind closed doors, locked away to those of us living with it. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the research out into the mainstream, present it and help us to understand it. The aim is to open up and in the process align what's being done in the research world with what it's like for us living our lives at the cold face, dealing with the challenges of diabetes. Join me, Andrew Wilson, and my co-host, Dr. Matthew Campbell, to explore the vault. Okay, welcome back to the Diabetes Vault. We're on episode three now, uh, the third episode of a trilogy of papers that Dr. Matt Campbell has put together. This is all to do with insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity and how important it is, not just for type ones, obviously it's important for type twos as well, but these papers are specifically looking at type ones in particular. For such a long time, um, living with type one diabetes, I didn't really have a view or any knowledge or any exposure to anything to do with insulin sensitivity or resistance. Never mentioned in clinic. I had read a couple of um, bits about it, um, but articles about it, but nothing that really resonated and nothing that really helped me. So um, Matt, would you very kindly uh, explain this this third paper, which you're obviously involved in? Yeah, that's right. So um, this this third paper was led by uh, my group. Um, it's got quite a lengthy title with some technical terms. So we'll spend a little bit of time just kind of going through and explaining exactly what they mean. Um, but the title is Estimated Glucose Disposal Rate as a Candidate Biomarker for Thrombosis or Thrombotic Biomarkers in Type 1 Diabetes. So to kind of explain what that might actually mean, the first thing, Estimated Glucose Disposal Rate. So you'll remember back from last week, we talked a little bit about this. This was our proxy marker of insulin resistance. Um, It's collected using routine clinical biomarkers. So in our study, we used um, uh, BMI, we used hypertension status and also HbA1c. You plug them into an equation, it gives you an overall score and it gives you an indication of where an individual might sit on that insulin sensitivity to insulin resistance spectrum. So we're looking at insulin resistance and we're looking at the impact that insulin resistance has on thrombotic biomarkers. So these are blood-borne markers, which we can observe through taking blood samples from uh, people with type 1 diabetes, and they all relate to thrombosis. So essentially, the propensity of the body to form blood clots. Um, We also looked at procoagulation as well, which is another lengthy term. And that's essentially looking at the viscosity of the blood. And those two things interact, whereby whereby the uh, the blood is more viscous. It then has a high propensity to form blood clots. And the reason why this is particularly important is because thrombosis and actually general vascular damage, it's a key risk factor for diabetes complications, all diabetes complications, whether it's microvascular or macrovascular. And we touched on a, a, little bit of, uh, a little bit of that last week. So microvascular being complications that affect small blood vessels and macrovascular uh, complications that affect the, the, the big um, blood vessels, such as uh, the heart. 
So one of the things we'll do is we'll put, as, as per usual, we'll put a link into this paper um, to the notes. Um, but the introduction, I thought I'd just interrupt you very quickly. And uh, th this introduction does not mess about. It goes straight in uh, to the sort of solar plexus. Um, insulin resistance in type 1 diabetes is an established risk factor for cardiovascular disease, retinopathy and premature mortality. So there's no messing about. Um, just be aware from the start, there's a lot of medical terms, which hopefully Matt can help us with, um, give us a, a good overview of this research paper and the conclusions that it pulls. If you have any questions about it, make sure you put it in the notes and come back to us because we're happy to revisit at any time and, and sort of question Matt in, uh, in more detail. There's going to be quite a bit of detail here. Sorry to interrupt, but I thought I'd get that intro sort of out the way. I, I think it once again delivers how important cardiovascular health is to people with diabetes, especially type ones. So the, the chances of having cardiovascular problems are increased. What you're looking at is dependent on insulin resistance. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think just kind of going back to that, that first sentence, which um, you just kind of read out from the paper, although that might be a surprise to a lot of people, this is, this is not controversial. So this is really well established. Insulin resistance is a key driver of these complications. And actually what this paper does, it actually distills a lot of that information. It pulls it together into, into one source. And it shows, uh, it shows um, fairly clearly that insulin resistance is the key driver of, of specific biomarkers, which we know are responsible early into the progression of diabetes complications. So we've looked at insulin resistance. We looked at, um, certainly in the last paper, we, we, we drew a, a kind of association and correlation between insulin resistance and diabetes complications. In this particular paper, what we're actually looking at is the underpinning mechanisms that drive those diabetes complications and still see whether there's a relationship between those mechanisms and insulin resistance. And what this paper demonstrates is that there's a very clear relationship between the two. So we're kind of joining the circle in a lot of ways. We've looked at some of the lifestyle influences that can, that can um, promote uh, and increase the risk of developing insulin resistance in the first paper. In the second paper, we've saw, we, or we, we kind of went through how insulin resistance can increase the risk of developing complications. And then this third paper, although there is a lot of technical detail, what it actually does is uncover some of the really important intrinsic mechanisms related to that linkage between insulin resistance and diabetes complications. In both of the previous papers, we've looked at the number of people that you were looking at. Um, can we have a discussion about the number of people that was in this research cohort? Yeah, sure. So in the first paper, there was around about 20 patients. In the second paper, there was about 2,000. In this third paper, we've kind of reduced the numbers back down. So there's, there was around, uh, so there was 32 people uh, with type 1 diabetes in this particular paper. And you might think, well, you know, why do you see that variation in sample size or the number of participants uh, included in a particular research paper? And generally, there's a bit of a sliding scale between the number of participants that you can recruit and the level or the either the level of information that you can collect from them or the level of invasiveness and in order to, to to actually obtain some of these results we had to put our participants through a couple of invasive measures and obviously trying to do that on quite a large scale can be quite difficult so that's why we've got a relatively conservative sample size but the one thing which i would say about the sample size is that even though you might think well 32 people you know that's not actually that many yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's not going to be directly representative to, 
you know, the entire population of people with type 1 diabetes. But what we're actually interested in is how much confidence can you have in these results? Now, sample size has a big thing to do with that. The larger your sample size, the more representative it is to the general population. But also what we're, what we're quite interested in is statistical power. Now, that's a, a kind of scientific term for how much confidence can you have in the statistics which have been run on the results? And the important thing here is that even though we had 32 participants, we achieved adequate statistical power. So that means that we can interpret the results with a very high degree of confidence. So what we've demonstrated here, we can have a very high, high degree of certainty that that's actually what is happening. And if we were to repeat the, the experiment, we would, you know, very, we would be very much likely to see, to see the same results. Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense. Now, you spoke about an invasive um, treatment, an invasive method of testing people. Obviously, it makes it very clear in the paper that there is a very invasive method of testing your insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance as such. Can, you, can we just briefly tell us a bit more about that and why that's not applicable to everyday life for, for me or anyone else living with diabetes? Absolutely, yeah. So um, the, the kind of gold standard technique that is used for measuring insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, remember that insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, they're just kind of diametrically opposed. So think of them as a kind of sliding scale on a continuum. The gold standard technique for measuring that is something called a hyperinsulinic euglycemic clamp. You might have come across a, a being mentioned as an insulin clamp, a lot easier to say. But if we kind of break down the word and think about you know, what that might actually mean, well, hyper means high, insulinic obviously relates to insulin. So we're looking at high insulin, euglycemic, glycemic being related to glucose, and you meaning normal. So actually what we're looking at is high insulin levels during normal glucose levels. And the way in which we can achieve that safely in a laboratory setting is to use something called a clamp technique. And this is where we insert a cannula into someone's vein. So they would usually come into a hospital setting. There would be a little bit of preparation beforehand. We would insert uh, a cannula, an indwelling cannula, so a needle which can stay in someone's arm for a number of hours. And what we would do is we would infuse insulin and also glucose at a steady state. Now, what we are trying to do is trying to achieve a high insulin level. Um, so we have a constant insulin infusion, a little bit like what you would have if you're wearing an insulin pump, yeah. but we're going to artificially manufacture, or we're going to artificially regulate that so we can set that to a, a certain level so that people don't fall under hypoglycemia. Then we're also going to clamp glucose levels at a certain level. So we have euglycemia. So we have glucose, normal blood glucose levels, and that's maintained by a simultaneous glucose, influ uh, glucose infusion. So straight away, you can see that this is a fairly complex and invasive procedure. Yeah. It takes a number of hours to do. And what we can do is we can actually measure the difference between the amount of insulin being administered and the amount of glucose needed in order to maintain that normal glucose level. So what you end up actually having is a kind of variable glucose rate of infusion. We're having to we're having to infuse glucose at a variable rate at certain time points throughout the experiment in order to lock um, glucose concentrations at a set level because insulin 
uh, or the, the 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 elevated concentrations of, of, of insulin, obviously trying to remove that glucose from the circulation. And it's that glucose infusion rate which tells us whether someone is either responsive or not very responsive to the effects of insulin. And that tells us whether they could be insulin resistant or not. So, for example, if you have a high glucose infusion rate, well, that means that more glucose is being removed from the circulation in response to the same amount of insulin. So that means that someone must be insulin sensitive. If you've got a low glucose infusion rate, then that means less glucose is being removed from the circulation. And therefore, someone must have um, for, the, for the same amount of insulin resistance. And that must mean that someone is slightly more insulin resistant. And we can use the numbers collected in this experiment to kind of place people on a bit of a sliding scale between insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. So that's the gold standard technique. It's incredibly expensive to do. It's incredibly uh, time uh, expensive as well. And obviously it's also fairly invasive. You know, not many people want to sit within a hospital setting and, and have all of this done to them. So is that the reason why we rarely speak about insulin sensitivity, do you think? Because this method is, is so rarely used, certainly on the mainstream, it's probably only used for research, correct? Yeah, I mean, I've only ever seen it used within a research setting. Yeah. Um, it, as I said, it's, it's, it's incredibly expensive. It takes a long time to do. You've got to be in the lab for a number of hours. It's also incredibly invasive as well. You know, not many people want to sit in a laboratory setting with, you know, an indwelling cannula in. Yeah. So it is incredibly difficult to do, but it is the gold standard. It's, it's the only way of directly measuring insulin resistance. So, so as an alternative to that, um, you know, we've been able to develop some proxy markers whereby we can kind of estimate this glucose disposal rate, the rate at which glucose is being removed from the circulation, which gives you an indicator of insulin resistance. So I would say that's definitely the main reason why it's not talked about in clinics, simply because it's actually very difficult to measure, or it has been difficult to measure directly. But actually, as we've demonstrated, certainly in the last paper, you can measure it indirectly. So why is it still not being discussed? Well, probably because it, it takes a bit of time to break through into the mainstream. And if we think about how diabetes is typically managed, we tend to manage the symptoms and not the underlying causes. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, yes, we've, we've spoken about this before, and I'm sure we'll speak about it over, over many different papers. So let, let's just go over one more time what this paper was, was trying to do, and then perhaps we can go into the conclusions that you found. Sure. So we were, we were taking our, our proxy marker of insulin resistance, estimated glucose disposal rate, and we were seeing whether that associated with thrombotic biomarkers. So blood-borne blood markers, um, which we know play a, a direct and intrinsic role in the development of diabetes-related complications. And if we were able to see an association between the two, then actually we would, we would be able to, to, to draw a, a fairly heavy inference between the role of insulin resistance in those complications. And ultimately also being able to say, well, actually, if we know that this is, in, if, if these factors are intrinsically related, then actually if we act really early on into the disease process, if you tackle insulin resistance, then perhaps you could actually prevent some of these complications from actually occurring. So, and, so sorry, Matt, just to just to interrupt, interrupt very quickly. There's there's two sides to this, isn't there? There's there's the side which is such as as my side and people living with diabetes, which is actually dealing with it. But there's also a, a huge sort of economic side to this as well. And what people may not be aware of is that the NHS spends ten percent of its budget 
on diabetes and 80% of that is on complications and dealing with complications. So there's there's both a, a sort of socioeconomic side, but there's also obviously a very personal side to, to people living with it. Is that something that's, that's taken into account with research papers, is, is the sort of financial side of, uh, of, of the cost to both the NHS and, and maybe to the wider um, diabetes community and, the, and, and healthcare providers across the world? It's Yeah, absolutely. It is really, really important. There's actually two aspects to the cost side of things. So when you look at economic evaluations of research, you can basically split them into two different halves. One is what is the direct cost of either treatment or complications. So actually, how much is it going to cost to treat people for the condition that they're living with? The second aspect of that is, well, how much is it going to cost if we don't do anything? So how much are those complications going to cost? And inevitably, the complications always or generally always cost more than the treatment. Yeah. Even if they don't cost more, or even if, even if the treatment is more expensive, as you said, you've also got the personal side there. And the other aspect which is included within these kind of economic evaluations is things like quality of life, number of days um, lost at work, so things like productivity, all of these aspects which affect GDP. So when you undertake an economic evaluation, it's absolutely central. And actually a lot of the decisions made by NICE, so the commissioning body in the UK who determines which treatments people get and actually what categories they can be offered and and who might be eligible for, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be very well aware of um, developments in kind of CGM within type one diabetes and how that's taken a long time to go through those commissioning stages. And now not everybody has been eligible to receive CGM on the NHS. It goes through multiple rounds of kind of commissioning uh, stages, which is largely based on value for money. So the value for money is, is this dramatically going to improve somebody's um, not only kind of uh, clinical outcomes, but also their quality of life? And could that money be better spent either elsewhere within diabetes or elsewhere within the NHS. But because diabetes, as you said, because diabetes is such um, a cost burden to the public purse, there's a huge priority in trying to prevent some of those complications. Because as you said, about 80% of the complications uh, or 80% of the cost goes to treating complications. And importantly, most of those complications are avoidable. So, you know, that's why there needs to be a huge, big focus on this. And, th- and there, are, there is a big, long list of complications that, that people with diabetes have to contend with. By far, the most common is cardiovascular, isn't it? That's right. So um, you're right in that there is uh, a whole host of complications, uh, which people, at di- people with diabetes, irrespective of diabetes type, are at risk of developing. The most common and actually the most salient killer within diabetes is cardiovascular disease. It's it's the major factor which reduces life expectancy. It also reduces quality of life. But importantly, all of these complications actually have a very similar root cause. You might remember to last week when I was talking about splitting those complications into two categories, the micro and the macro. Well, the micro tends to proceed developments in the macrovascular complications which makes sense doesn't it It, that that makes complete sense because if you think what starts with most illnesses certainly chronic illnesses and things getting worse is you start to see small side effects small issues and as you say microvascular uh, uh, the neuropathy the retinopathy you start you start to experience small changes over time and as that compounds 
they start to get worse, that will then lead on to what would could ultimately be macrovascular problems and heart issues and, and, and attacks as such. Absolutely. I mean, it's actually, the way to think of it is something which is either subclinical or clinical. Subclinical is something which is very difficult to detect. It's happening uh, almost kind of behind the curtain, behind the scenes. It's developing over a long period of time. And then it gets to the point where you start to develop symptoms and that becomes clinically detectable. So a lot of the complications which you talk about are clinical. You know, you, you, you can actually diagnose that within a clinical setting. But the actual progression to that point is subclinical. It's happening. We know it, we know it's occurring. You can find out around these changes using some of the more invasive tests that we have done. But within routine clinical settings, it's almost impossible to determine whether, you know, where somebody is is actually at in terms of the stage of the disease or the stage of progression of complications. We were really just left looking at certain risk factors, which largely comes down to, you know, uh, genetics or lifestyle choices or particular treatments that people might might be being offered. I mean, we actually published a paper a couple of years ago that looked at retinopathy. So we, we did retinal scans. Uh, again, there was a fairly large sample size, about 8,000 or so. And we looked at that in childhood all the way through to mid-adulthood. And we were able to demonstrate that, you know, those who had abnormalities in some of the, in some of the, uh, the small blood vessels that supply the eye, we were able to predict their cardiovascular health in adulthood. Oh, so... As I said, this, this occurs over a long period of time and it tends to affect the small blood vessels early on. The mechanisms affecting that is exactly what is included within this paper. It relates to the health of the blood vessels and the propensity to form blood clots. Okay. Did you want to go into any more detail about the methods before you kind of get to the conclusions um, that, that were on this paper? It might be worthwhile sort of explaining a bit about the, the methods and the statistical side. Yeah, sure. This paper is slightly, slightly novel compared to the last two in that how we actually developed this paper was by pooling the results of two previously published randomized control trials. So two interventional trials. And what we actually looked at was the baseline pre-treatment data from both of those trials. So we, we actually combined the numbers from two different papers in order to improve the statistical power. So again, so that we can increase how much confidence we can actually have in the results. So that's that's the first thing. And that's how we were able to achieve a sample size of, of, of around about 30, even with these relatively invasive uh, measures. The next thing which we actually did, which is which is fairly, which is fairly novel is that we applied a particular statistical technique that essentially amalgamates all of the biomarkers of interest. So what we did was we, we decided that these are this, this is a particular list of biomarkers that we are interested in. We looked at inflammatory biomarkers. We looked at uh, procoagulant biomarkers, so things that change the viscosity of the blood. And uh, we also looked at thrombosis biomarkers, so things, biomarkers which we know are responsible for increasing blood clots. Those three factors, inflammation, uh, prothrombosis, and procoagulation, when those three elements are increased, or we have a, 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 what we call a kind of procoagulant, a prothrombotic, a pro-inflammatory state, that's, that is really the kind of the three pillars of developing atherosclerosis. So that's damage to the blood vessels. That's where our blood vessels become less flexible. They become uh, thicker. 
and uh, become less malleable over time. Um, and it, it actually causes damage to the cells of the blood vessel. And that's the very first stage of developing cardiovascular disease, as well as other microvascular complications as well. Now, rather than just looking at these biomarkers in isolation, which a lot of papers do, and the issue with doing that is that sometimes, depending on the population of interest, the outcomes which have been assessed, the particular techniques used, is that you can see that inflammation might be very high, but procoagulation might, you know, you might struggle to detect a, a, significant, uh, a significant difference between different groups or over, or over time. And actually, the approach that we took is that, well, all of these different factors are interrelated. We know that inflammation increases vascular damage. We know that procoagulation has a direct uh, and also kind of reciprocal influence on uh, other uh, biomarks of interest. So we're not going to look at them in isolation. We're going to use a particular statistical approach that pulls them together and get an overall kind of vascular score. So that's what we did. So we, we, we assessed the impact of insulin resistance on a kind of vascular score. So we applied a vascular score to each, each individual. They were kind of ranked. Um, and then we looked at whether they had underlying insulin resistance or not. So that's really the kind of the, the novel methodological aspect of this particular paper. We spoke about an insulin resistance scale and, and you've just mentioned a vascular score. Is that something that, that, that is new or is that something that was, that, that was previously established? No, so that's actually relatively, relatively new. So um, the statistical approach that we took to develop the vascular score, that's, that's pretty novel. The actual technique for doing that has been used numerous times in different settings. It's completely new in terms of this application, though. Um, and actually, there isn't really anything out there that gives you a fairly comprehensive vascular score. You can look at kind of generic biomarkers. So inflammation is actually a really good example of this. You know, you can, you can, um, you can pay for one of those kits, you know, that can be sent out to your home. You take a little blood sample, you send it back. They might give you some biomarkers. Well, that's, that's helpful to some extent, if you like tracking numbers, but you know, what does it actually tell you? I'm not, I'm not actually that convinced it tells you anything meaningful or, or certainly anything meaningful that you can actually go away and improve. When, when you look at these types of tests, it will tell you, well, you know, you're, an, an inflammatory marker might be slightly higher. The problem with that is it's looking at global inflammation. Now, obviously, inflammatory levels, they fluctuate throughout the day. And it's the same with procoagulation, prothrombosis, and glucose, and every other biomarker which, which is of interest to complications. They fluctuate throughout the day. They fluctuate whether you've got diabetes or not. What we've actually done is picked very specific biomarkers, which we know are linked to mechanistic pathways related to diabetes complications. So we can be very, very tissue specific. And that's important because we know that the measures that we are looking at relate directly to blood vessel health. Okay. Okay. That, that explains it. Um, so would you like to go through the, um, the conclusions that were, or the results and the conclusions that were, that were drawn from this? Sure. So we had 32 people within the study. It was a pooled analysis, which means that we pulled the data from two previously uh, published studies and we used that pre-treatment, so baseline without any intervention, just as the, as the participants came in, the very first results, we pulled all of that together. We looked at insulin resistance using a proxy, our estimated glucose disposal rate, 
and we looked at their vascular health, subclinical vascular health, using this novel statistical approach by pulling together a number of different uh, vascular biomarkers. What we were able to demonstrate was that insulin resistance, we know that it's, it's an established risk factor for macro and also microvascular complications in type 1 diabetes. But actually the linkage between the two, so the linkage between insulin resistance and vascular risk, it's largely because of an, an, uh, what's called uh, an enhanced prothrombotic milieu. So what that means is uh, the general kind of thrombotic environment within the body, once that is enhanced or it's increased, then that increases the risk for, for um, developing these complications. And what increases this particular prothrombotic milieu is insulin resistance. And that's largely driven through inflammation. So if you remember back prothrombosis, it means the likelihood of developing clots, it affects platelets, their ability to, to form clots. Um, and if you think about why that might actually occur, well, it occurs because of damage to vascular cells. So the cells which line the blood vessels. People who have diabetes generally have what we call endothelial dysfunction. So this is um, kind of abnormalities of the vascular wall because of various reasons, either because of the disease process of developing diabetes or because of struggling to control blood sugar levels or generally being in an inflamed state or because of underlying insulin resistance or combination of all these factors. Okay. So what we were able to demonstrate was that people with type 1 diabetes, they generally have a prothrombotic milieu. So they've got an increased risk of developing blood clots. And actually that increased risk is driven primarily through insulin resistance mediated by inflammation. So the key is if you can control insulin resistance, then you can lower the risk of this prothrombotic milieu, which is going to drive those complications. So it really does insulin resistance within this context. And what this paper actually demonstrates is that it's really a key therapeutic target for reducing thrombotic biomarkers and preventing the development of these vascular complications. It also shows that insulin resistance, again, as we touched on last week, it can be established in clinic fairly easily using a routine routinely uh, obtained biomarkers of a proxy, which is estimated glucose disposal rate. And actually it's a very suitable, um, it's a very suitable indicator of prothrombosis. The other key thing which we showed in this paper, a little bit like last week, was we also compared this to BMI. And what we were able to show was that our estimated glucose disposal rate is a, is a much more superior biomarker um, to determining overall vascular risk than BMI. So it's not just about how much weight you're carrying, but it's actually about the underlying insulin resistance. So again, you know, we, we need to stop kind of judging things on the surface and look a little bit further uh, at the kind of intricate mechanisms involved here. Don't judge a book by its cover it's, it's in, that, in that respect. There's some quite remarkable stuff in here, isn't there really? EGDR is something that's very new, very, very new. You know, you're the first person I've spoken to about it. These are the first papers that I've read about it. Um, but it does make sense. It makes complete sense. And actually, if you can replace something that is invasive, that is impossible to actually do on a, on a daily basis or even a monthly basis, and it's costly, it's time consuming, if you can replace that with something else that is that is a reliable proxy, and that can give you a good gauge of your vascular sort of health 
your chances of having long-term diabetes complications, you can save people's lives. And that's what research is all about, I'm assuming. So that's where you really want to start. So what would be the next stage for these kind of results? What are you looking at as being the next step for, for further verification, clarification in, in a research um, sort of forum? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, firstly, I just want to touch on what, what you said. Our, our, our proxy, our estimated glucose disposal rate, it's essentially a barometer. You know, it's essentially like wearing a watch. You know, it, it gives you an indication of where you are at in time. Although your watch might not necessarily be synced to Greenwich Mean Time, you know, so you might, you know, you might be a couple of seconds off, um, you know, so it's not a direct assessment, but actually what it gives you is a very good indication of where you are at in time with relation to your vascular health. And why that is particularly important, yes, glucose is important for the day-to-day. -day. It's also important for the long-term. We don't dispute that. Yeah. But actually, it's, it's, it's the vascular, um, it's your overall vascular health, which will determine whether you're likely to develop or progress to complications, uh, or co uh, conversely, whether you can actually regress some of, those some of those complications as well. In terms of the next steps for research, well, you'll notice that I've kind of presented... Um, two different types of research over the last three weeks. We've had tightly controlled laboratory-based studies. And then on the other arm, we've, we've had these really big uh, epidemiology population-based studies. The population ones really are hypothesis generating. They give us more questions than what they give us answers. They say, well, actually, this is what we've observed in the general population. Yeah. Um, is, this, is this true? Then we've tried to go back to the lab and actually see whether that holds true. And what we were able to see was through paper one, um, this is what we think is happening. We think insulin resistance is important from a mechanistic side. Does this actually happen out in the real world? The, the second paper, it says, yes, this is what is actually happening out in the, meal, in, in the real world, but we don't really know why. The third paper, which we've presented today, it sheds light on some of these mechanisms. Now, the next logical step is, well, what do we do with all of this information? You know, how do people actually make the changes that they need to do? How do they actually track their insulin resistance? How do they track the factors which we know are important for insulin resistance? And as far as I'm aware, there's absolutely nothing out there that does that to date. So the next logical step for us is to try and develop a tool which would be able to pull all of this information together and actually be able to track that over time to say, well, is what we are seeing in the laboratory and is what we are kind of observing in the population, do those things hold true between the two? Because at the moment, we don't really have anything which is doing that. And a really important part of that is education, is for people to understand what these terms are, what, what you're looking at and how you're looking at it, and if they can actually get access to it. For me, this is the, the progression between from, from paper one and talking about processed food to unprocessed food and how important that is in relation to insulin resistance. And the second paper, and certainly this third paper, it really does drive home how important insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity is for all of us. I spend a, on a daily basis, hourly basis, minute by minute basis, you watch your, your blood sugars and you track what's going on. And you do that quite often for the now. You do that because you want to feel okay, you want to feel good, you want to feel normal as such, um, whatever normal is in today's society. But you want to feel like, potentially you want to feel like you're not diabetic because, and you don't want to be, you don't want your, your life 
affected adversely having diabetes and, and having to deal with the challenges of being diabetic. And the older you get, I find, the more you start to be worried about the complications and the more you start to, to think about those things that you you didn't want to talk about for so many years. And ultimately, that's that's the greatest fear. So if you're doing research into what is the greatest fear um, and can help people with that, I think it's got great added value and it's got great value. But this is part and parcel of what you and I are trying to do here, which is just to bring this out into the to, to the wider community for people to actually go, OK, let me have a think about this. You know, what do I need to do to research this more? Blood clots, interestingly, wasn't something that I realised affected people with high blood sugars and low blood sugars so if you're if you're getting that huge variability and you're constantly high and constantly low yeah you can put up with that for years perhaps but that cumulative effect that we you and i spoke about that has an adverse effect over time and i think what what these papers also proves is if you can score it and you can get a metric and you can get a gauge then would we like to know where on that gauge we are absolutely we would yeah, and I mean, one, one thing which I would, again, just kind of pick up on what you mentioned there was, of course, long-term complications, they're always in the back of someone's head. You know, if you're living with diabetes, it is what people really worry about. But also for people with type 1 diabetes, a lot of people get diagnosed very early on in childhood or adolescence, you know, and those, those kind of, those worries might be a long time away. Insulin resistance impacts the here and now as well as the long-term complications. They underpin your, your blood glucose control as well. So it's important for the short-term and also the long-term. Interestingly as well, as we talked a little bit about vascular health and uh, endothelial health. So end, the, the endothelium is the lining of the blood vessels. And um, we know that that can be slightly abnormal in people with diabetes. Uh, it can be slightly more damaged than what it would be. Um, but that occurs secondary to insulin resistance. So that's the key thing. Okay, Vascular, vascular changes occur, but it, they occur secondary to insulin resistance. But they also occur secondary to insulin resistance with or without high blood sugar levels. And that's, a, that's also a very key point. So yes, by all means, continue to focus on your blood sugar levels. It's really important. Continue with your, your overall diabetes management. But just remember the things which, or the, the, the primary driver of your vascular health is insulin resistance. It will, it will impact your vascular health irrespective of whether your blood sugar levels are, are, are good or less well controlled. And that is a fundamental shift. Yeah, I mean, that, that in itself is a, is, a, is a big paradigm shift around some of the, the rhetoric, some of the, some of the information which is delivered, not just you know, between people with diabetes, but also within a clinical setting as well. It is very glucocentric. It is glucocentric for a good reason. We know yes. that it is important. We know that we need to control blood sugar levels. Absolutely. But actually, let's also focus on the underlying root cause, which is insulin resistance. Yeah, the, the narrative doesn't need to change in so much as blood glucose variability and, and having control is important for not only your day-to-day and your long-term health, but the narrative needs to be expanded to start to talk about the cause and not the symptoms. 
And that is where insulin sensitivity is 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 so obviously fundamentally important. Matthew, I think these these papers have been a, a real eye opener for anyone watching and listening to this. If anyone's got any comments um, or they've they've got anything that they'd like to contribute towards this, any questions, then please DM us or put some notes on um, on messages on YouTube or on Instagram. We uh, will be continuing with other papers very shortly. Um, if you want to be a guest then please, again, contact us and let us know. We're going to be inviting some people on very shortly and we'll be continuing with some more papers. Look, I hope you got value from this week and, and, um, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everyone.